The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Francis Bacon on view in London, a Botticelli on sale in New York, and seeing gender in Asian art in San Francisco. We visit the Royal Academy in London, where a new show looking at Francis Bacon's use of animal imagery, Man and Beast, opens this weekend. I talked to Georgina Adam about The Man of Sorrows, the Botticelli painting hitting the auction room this week. And we find out whether it went beyond its guaranteed sale price of $40 million. And Amy Dawson talks to Megan Merritt at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco about a pairing of works in the new exhibition that explores the museum's collection through the lens of gender for the first time. Before all that, you can save 40% on a digital subscription to the art newspaper that gives you unlimited access to the website and our app for iOS and Android, and up to 50% on the complete subscription, which means you get the newspaper as well as access to the website and app. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page, select your subscription and enter the promo code digital sale for digital or print sale for complete. And do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, Francis Bacon, Man and Beast, is the first exhibition to look at the artist's work through his fascination with animals, which he explored through a huge range of source material, and the effect that this had on his depiction of the human figure. It includes around 45 paintings from early works in the 1930s and 40s, right up to his last ever painting, made in 1991. He died the following year. Among the works are famous triptychs, a series of paintings after Diego Velázquez's Pope Innocent X, and a trio of paintings of bullfights from 1969. I spoke to Axel Ruger, the director of the Royal Academy, in the exhibition. Axel, there's been a lot of exhibitions about Francis Bacon. Always there's the emphasis on the human. There's that here too, but we're looking at animals as well. Tell us about Bacon's fundamental connection to the world of animals. Yes, it is absolutely. But it is also about humans, but it is about, you know, the animalistic dimension of humans, really, in this exhibition, because that's all about it. I mean, it's not just an exhibition about animals. Um, He had, of course, a lifelong fascination with animals. He, you know, grew up around them and then later also studied them, observed them a great deal, both in the London Zoo, but also, you know, in free reign in in Africa, um, where he visited family. And then he collected, of course, illustrations, photographs of animals, animal studies animals in motion and so forth but ultimately he's of course trying to get under the skin of you know both animals and humans and really what fascinates him the most is now what are these sort of um, animalistic traits and instincts that we have as humans and that we share with animals and that our civilization and our manners and everything is just a really thin veneer overlaying it and holding back and moderating some of our sort of, you know, base animal instincts. That's the thing, isn't it? Because, of course, the project was a post-war project, if you like. Bacon's artistic life came after a period in which human existence was exposed as so brutal during the Second World War. And he was always making this 
torturous representation of human life and animals allowed him to sort of unlock that somehow. Yeah, I think it was that, but I think it also he saw then this sort of uncanny parallel. And we must not forget, of course, he already started as an artist, even though not much survives already before the Second World War, but he had also seen the First World War. So I guess it, for him, it revealed what humans are actually capable of and the sort of bestiality, you know, that humans... And then that meant, you know, there's a lot more sort of parallel and a lot more sort of visceral quality to it. And that is, I think, that, you know, so greatly then informs his work and how this comes now to the fore. Indeed. And we're in a huge and very beautiful room here, right in the heart of the Royal Academy. And we're surrounded by, in a way, the most illustrative works in the show in terms of representations of animals. We've got a work behind us in which a a very direct representation of an owl was used as the source material. There are images of a dog right next to us. There are chimpanzees, things like that. Can you say something about the kind of imagery he was calling on? Yes, I mean, he starts really early on with sort of what, you know, we refer to as biomorphs, which were also partly inspired by Picasso, where you cannot really say whether it's human. It's, you know, a somewhat partly human figure, but then with just a screaming mouth attached to it without really the full head. Here in this room, we are really looking at animals that he had seen and studied, either be it, you know, in in the zoo or, you know, also in Africa or, you know, through photography. I guess, you know, the animal that occurs the most is the dog. So dogs keep coming back. Um, And also he refers to photography of dogs, studies by Edward Mybridge, where the animal in motion is actually photo-documented. And, you know, so he studies a lot of that. But again, here also he draws already parallels where you also see sort of humans crouching in the long grass as he would have observed animals in the sort of savanna in Africa. And there, sort of these parallels are already becoming visible. And there's a really rather wonderful painting behind me where you almost have a feeling a man is looking in a mirror and an ape is looking back at him. So there is that. And whether it's a reflection or just actually a sort of, you know, an ape next to him remains a bit unresolved and unclear and it doesn't really matter ultimately. Right. I mean, one of the things that this show does, and as you say, is it sort of expands the world of Bacon a little in the sense that we're so, in a way, used to this image of Bacon as this dweller in Soho going to the colony room, getting drunk and then going back into this extraordinary studio and making work. But the idea that he went to South Africa and observed wildlife in the long grass, it seems to me like a, a revelation. Yeah, it is. I mean, and uh, sort of, you know, many more, more, many more dimensions to it. And I think it's always a bit tricky. Also, the, the temptation is great with Bacon to extrapolate his work from his biography and from his life and from his daily life and daily experience. And while there are obvious connections, I think, you know, one has to be a bit sort of careful with that, that it's also, you know, of course, these works are sort of in their own right, and he takes them far beyond, you know, our daily experience and really is trying to get something a lot more essential that sort of motivates us, that can also be really dark sides to our being that we often also try to negate or ignore or suppress. Um, and of course, he was also one trying to, you know, seek out the boundaries of polite existence, as it were, you know, and really, you know, seek out sort of also the more extreme behaviors among humans. 
Indeed. And you see that, don't you? Several times throughout the show, you have the sort of elements of polite society, the suit, the herringbone coat, the umbrella, and around them are these savage images of animal mouths or animalistic human forms. But even in those pictures where you see these sort of traits of, if you like, civilization, actually he strips them right back and the facial features are reduced to, you know, very often a screaming mouth, which is a very sort of base utterance of any human or animal, as it were. Um, but he's not interested really in the sort of, of otherwise f- sort of physical representation of the figure, uh, of that person, as it were. So, you know, that is also, you know, constantly that sort of going back and forth between those poles. You're right to point out that, that of course, these are not immediately autobiographical or biographical pictures but there are personages in these paintings who are very directly representations of the people around Bacon, people who were significant others in his life the pictures we were talking about that were inspired by these landscapes he saw in South Africa are quite close to us now and they are also about a very violent relationship he had with Peter Lacey at the time and that comes through all the way through the show it's about using the animal forms to explore sexual relationships Yes, absolutely, absolutely and, and there's, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, of course, he also, in his relations, you know, was, I guess, prone to explore also, you know, they're the outer limits of what is um, bearable even, if yeah. you like, um, and also drawn to that kind of behavior. So that, of course, does come back in, in, in the works. But also then it's, it's, I think, interesting because it's not just sort of any, you know, if you want to call it bestiality or primordial behavior, because sometimes the figures nevertheless also seem quite vulnerable when he shows them. So there's also a tenderness about when he shows George Dyer in a really contorted body and possibly, you know, with an animalistic head, if you like. And while it's very sort of visceral in your face and looks brutal, but at the same time there's also a tenderness. And of course, the figures are often usually alone because he does not really paint that many multi-figured compositions you know they're very alone slash lonely perhaps yeah and of course his language his painterly language is something that we should focus on because as you say there are moments of great tenderness one of the great things about bacon i think and often not talked about a huge amount is what an extraordinary flareful painter he is there's so much variety of paint as you say a kind of brutal mark and then extremely tender passages yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, uh, he is very expressive. He was obviously not taught formally painting, so he also taught himself. He felt a greater liberty at using materials also. But of course, you know, they are very painterly and often very expressive in the application of the paint, sometimes really thick layers, but sometimes also where he very cleverly obscures any identifiable features by making them look out of focus or you know it's almost almost like something that Gerhard Richter also then you know took inspiration from <laughs> right, when we look at the picture behind us of what's actually this flying owl but also called a study for a crucifixion you see this very heavy application of the paint which makes it almost sort of also you know a haptic experience mm. you almost want to touch it of course in a museum you can't you shouldn't <laughs> but um, you know it is also that on that level that you know it communicates with us I find that most sort of palpable in, in the paintings of the bullfight. These extraordinary slashes of white across the, across yeah. the paintings. Yeah. It's, and it's yeah. a beautiful room, that really powerful room. Tell us about the bullfight work. Well, the bullfights um, he painted in, in the 50s, they were never meant to be a triptych because we're tempted to think any pictures of sets of three you know, were meant to be together, but those were not. Um, we're showing them now together for the first time in 
ever since they left the studio, essentially. And it is interesting to see them in these different interpretations of sort of the same scene where you see a man fighting the bull, which is a subject that fascinated him greatly. He called it sort of an aperitif to sex. Uh, because it is, of course, you know, a scene of utter violence, of the fight to the death between man and, and animal. And also sort of... I guess, awakening in the baying crowd also, you know, some sort of really base instincts, you know, rooting for mostly the torero, less for the animal, I suppose. But at the same time, and while he gives us a glimpse of a potentially baying audience, actually it's also shown as if it's on a stage and almost as if it's a dance. And, you know, again, it's never really clearly one thing or the other. There is also that sort of beauty of that dance between animal and the human but also underlying the utter violence so yeah absolutely and, and of course in depicting the bullfight he naturally engages with a long history in terms of art so one thinks of Goya's amazing works featuring the bullfight and of course Picasso one of Bacon's great heroes is that a very conscious dialogue is he saying I am I'm engaging with that history well, I think to some degree it is because, of course, he was. You know, I mean, Bacon is often just sort of slightly described as well. He was drunk and then he sort of, you know, madly painted. But also, he was very educated, very informed, new sources of inspiration and so forth. So, yes, I mean, there's undoubtedly that connection. And it's also not for nothing that in the very last painting in the exhibition, which is the final painting that is known by him from 1991, where he shows again a ball, but kind of fading into the background. You see a sort of white light around him. The outline is rather vague. It's also painted with dust. So it's clearly also a reflection on mortality, on his own mortality. And also the ball has quietened down, as it were. Yeah. And again, that reflection on mortality comes in a, se- in a sequence of paintings about the sort of injured torero, which, which is an extraordinary, again, extraordinary group of works. And in here you link it very closely to Federico García Lorca's poet about the fallen torero. Yeah. And it's yeah. interesting, again, that to, to establish those kind of literary connections as well as the kind of world of imagery yeah, that, yeah. that Bacon yeah, surrounded yeah, himself yeah, no, with. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, was about how, obviously, you don't want to be too illustrative here's a chimpanzee here's a dog <laughs> etc there were images here which relate again in, in our historical terms they, re- they relate to Velasquez's extraordinary Pope painting and, and what Bacon unleashed from that um, why are they included and what do they tell us about this sort of whole theme around the animal yeah well, I think, I mean, they are in the room also with other portraits. And, I mean, he was greatly fascinated by Velasquez as a painter, as many modern artists were. But here he takes, of course, I guess the figure of that we know within our civilization of one of the figures of the absolute highest authority, the highest status you could possibly imagine, and strips all of that away. Because that status of that figure doesn't really matter. Uh, also, uh, he was not religious, so you know he didn't believe in anything that the Pope stood for. But strips it right back and then gives him, you know, either turns the facial features vague, but also adding animalistic features or, you know, that sort of primordial cry with a sort of wide open mouth, the teeth sort of exposed, which is, of course, you know, that sort of primal form of expression that fascinated him so much, you know. The, and, of course, the, the scream, the cry, can be an expression of utter despair and pain or also of 
utter ecstasy and, you know, excitement. So, you know, again, it's that, but I guess he gets to the point that the Pope being the Pope, ultimately he is just a creature of, you know, flesh and bones and blood throwing, and, of course, also a carcass, as he often refers to us being ultimately just carcasses. There's that very famous quote of Bacon's, which is on one of the wall labels here, about unleashing the valves of feeling. Yeah, it's one thing yeah, that I think yeah, this show yeah. does very effectively. I think this is what the show generally does. I mean, he wants to grab you by the sort of jugular, as it were, and really, you know, speak to you on a very visceral, emotional level. And when people then say, oh, I find it sometimes really hard to access his work. And I said, just go with your emotions, you know, see how you react. And if it's revulsion... That's fine too, you know, because it is really trying to get to something that is not really, you know, just driven by our intellect and knowing history of art and all of that, but really to something much more base. In a way, it's an aside, but I couldn't help but notice this. We still are in the relatively young days of coming out of being imprisoned in, in our, on our screens and not being used to seeing very physical things. This seems to me to be a perfect show for, to bring more people into galleries yeah, and yeah. seeing physical art again. Uh, well, the irony is apparently the dial then has moved on because when we, of course, reopened immediately after the lockdown in the middle of the pandemic, we showed... David Hockney's, you know, beautiful outdoors, you know, nature scenes, very healing, very positive, colorful. And now this could not be more anathema. And now this is appropriate. And the thing is, many people now think that there is, you can see a reflection now of our uh, existence. And maybe that is true, because, of course, we have gone through, at least for many of us who have not lived through the world wars, you know, to something that has been possibly one of the most existential challenges in terms of our entire lives, beings, confronted with loneliness as we may not have been before. And, you know, I'm sure that that will resonate in the background somewhere when looking at, at these works, because many of these figures are at the very least alone, if not lonely also, you know, in these pictures and are very much sort of, you know, thrown back to the essence of their existence. And I think to some degree there is a reflection of that through our experience of the pandemic. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Francis Bacon, Man and Beast, is at the Royal Academy in London from the 29th of January until the 17th of April. Coming up, the Botticelli on sale in New York and the Old Master Market in general, and we explore gender in works from the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The UK's first LGBTQ museum is due to open this spring in London, founded by the charity Queer Britain. As Gareth Harris writes, the museum will be located in a building owned by the Art Fund charity. The space will house four galleries, a workshop, an education space, gift shop and offices. The new institution celebrates the stories, people and places that are so intrinsic to the queer community in the UK and beyond, says a statement. The museum's plans and programming schedules are due to be announced, but crucially there will be no admission fee. 
Seven museums in Germany have launched a joint project to research their Chinese collection for objects looted during the Boxer Rebellion. As Ye Charlotte Ming writes, in 1900, Chinese anti-colonial fighters, also known as the Boxers, attacked and killed Christian missionaries and other foreigners in a campaign to drive them out of China. In response, countries including Germany, France and Britain invaded China and brutally suppressed the rebellion. Tens of thousands of people were killed during the war and Allied soldiers subsequently occupied and plundered the Chinese Imperial Palace and other institutions in Beijing. Researchers estimate that thousands of objects in German museums today are likely to have been looted during that time, including porcelain, bronzes and picture scrolls. German museums had until now concentrated their efforts on looted objects from Africa, and the country's colonial history in China is still little known by the public. A sculpture of an African deity by Simone Lee, who will show in the US pavilion at the Venice Biennale from April, has gone on display in New Orleans, where a monument to the Confederate General Robert E. Lee once stood. As Benjamin Sutton reports, the sculpture, Sentinel Mamiwata, was unveiled last weekend at the base of the column on which the Lee statue once stood, in the centre of a roundabout formerly known as the Lee Circle. The work's installation was part of the final weekend of programming for the fifth edition of the Prospect New Orleans Triennial, curated by Naima J. Keith and Diana Nawi. Keith and Nawi said that the Robert E. Lee monument was a menacing white supremacist presence that loomed over the city and that the placement of Simone Lee's work is a rejection of that symbolism. You can read these stories and much more on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. On the heels of Americana Week at Christie's New York, the Outsider Art Live auction begins on the 3rd of February to showcase creations by the category's top artists and by up-and-coming names in the field. Discover significant works by Henry Darger, Bill Trailer, and Martin Ramirez, as well as pieces by European artists such as Augustine Lesage and Carlo Zinelli, and American artists such as Eugène von Broenkenhain, David Butler and Sam Doyle. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, this week, The Man of Sorrows, a painting made on the cusp of the 15th and 16th centuries by Sandro Botticelli, came to auction at Sotheby's in New York, a year on from the auction house's sale of a portrait of a young man with a roundel, which sold for $92 million. The Man of Sorrows is billed as a defining masterpiece from the artist's late career. I spoke to Georgina Adam, one of our editors at large and an art market specialist, about the work and the old master market more generally. And while I had Georgina, I also asked her about the big art market news of the week, that MCH Group, the owner of the Art Basel Fairs, is to take over FIAC slot at the Grand Palais in Paris to host a new contemporary art fair in October. It's a shock because FIAC, which was founded in 1974, is regarded as a Parisian institution. But first, the Botticelli. Note that we spoke before the auction on Thursday afternoon UK time, and I'll give you the result of that auction after the conversation. Georgina, it's the first big old masterwork to come to auction this year, this Botticelli. Tell us more about it. Yes, well, this is a late Botticelli. It dates from the very end of the 15th century, or beginning of the 16th, it's not quite clear. And so it's a late Botticelli in the sense that his style changed a lot. He became under the influence of Savonarola, the preacher, and became very religious, or perhaps more religious, I should say. So it looks very different from the one that was sold pretty well a year ago in New York, which was the young man with a roundel. This one, The Man of Sorrows, is very full frontal, 
a very bold, actually extraordinarily modern looking face, which is quite surprising. And it is guaranteed, carries an irrevocable bid, so it is actually sold. The estimate is given in excess of $40 million and it's coming up at Sotheby's on Thursday the 27th. Right. Tell us about the estimate because the guarantee is $40 million. Mm. Obviously, the young man with the roundel that you referred to sold for $92 million. $40 million seemed to me a bit on the low side. How would you account for, for 40 Well, there's a number of reasons. And of course, it could go well over yes. 40 Yeah. Yeah, we, so we don't know. We shall see. One of them is that I think that these earlier Botticellis are more sought after. They more correspond to what we think of as a Botticelli, I think. And that one, the young man with the roundel, didn't carry a guarantee. It came from the Solo collection, um, and he'd had it for decades, and it had been actually on viewing museums. Now, this one comes from a private collection. There's rather a curious thing in the catalogue, because it says they're acquired, and this was a sale that was back in 1963 when it was sold at Sotheby's for £10,000. They're acquired by Butler as an agent for the present owner, which is kind of mysterious. We don't know who Butler is. The other thing is that it has had, at some point, quite a radical intervention. I asked for the condition report, and this is what it says. The wood panel support has undergo a past intervention in which the paint and preparatory layer were transferred to canvas. And the canvas was adhered to a flat wood panel, the reverse surface of the original support, about five millimetres deep, was kept and attached to the back of the new composite, thereby preserving information about the original construction. So it has actually undergone, at some unspecified point in the past, really quite a major intervention, is that they seem to have taken off the paint layer, put it on canvas, and then put it back onto wood. I don't know whether that will has an influence on the price, but the restoration could possibly, I suppose be one of the reasons why it's not uh, estimated at such a higher price. Do religious pictures tend to go for less money than non-religious pictures, especially for somebody like Botticelli? I mean, the young man with the roundel is a, is a secular portrait, for instance. This is obviously a religious image. The, the thing is, because of Salvatore Mundi, which is obviously a Leonardo, and there's all sorts of very unique things about it, that sort of skews our idea of religious pictures to a certain degree. But can you say that there is a difference in pricing and a kind of appetite for religious images amongst collectors? I think that's difficult to say in general because it all depends. As you say, Leonardo da Vinci's Salvador Mundi is a religious picture. However, a religious picture has probably less appeal to vast swathes of art buyers today who come from non-Christian backgrounds. Uh, so, for example, Chinese... As far as the Middle East is concerned, it's it's more difficult to say because, of course, Saudi Arabia bought the Leonardo da Vinci. Indeed. I think that it's more the subject of a religious painting. I think a gruesome martyrdom is less attractive, whereas a, a very bold wall power type portrait is more attractive, even if it's religious.
it seems to me that this one fits somewhere in the middle of what you just described in a way because it, there's an austerity to it there's a sort of you know there's obviously there's lots of the symbols the classic symbols of a portrait of resurrected christ in terms of you know drips of blood and the stigmata etc but at the same time as you say there's this incredibly contemporary very human presence that the portrait has yes i think that it has no doubt wall power you walk into a room you would go wow And I think that always tells in favour of a work of art that's for sale. What I do think is interesting as well to discuss is the state of the old master market. Because the young man holding a roundel, which sold for last year, it sold for 92 million, as you said, uh, in a sale that actually totaled, I think, 114 million, there was a Rembrandt withdrawn. So it, it actually represented the vast bulk of that sale. And this we shall see. Uh, This is, I think, quite a strong sale, the one the Man of Sorrows is in. But the old master market is really divided into a few really top works of art and the rest. And there are not that many collectors coming in. You know, it's not a strong field. Now, Sotheby's, interestingly, have told me just recently that they are seeing a lot of Asian interest in old masters. And they actually have pointed to, in fact, an antiquity that was bought by an Asian uh, last year, the Hamilton Aphrodite, but also the fact that the underbidder on the young man holding a roundel was Asian. So that's interesting because the old master paintings field is not a, a thriving field, for example. It's not comparable to contemporary or modern art painting. And, you know, obviously Sotheby's have had the Botticelli last year and now this one. Are the other auction houses as sort of bullish or sort of confident about old masters in the same way? What's the sort of word you're getting from other auction houses and other people in the the industry? Yes. Well, Christie's, who I spoke to recently about this, admitted that it's not their strongest market. I mean, they never say anything's weak, but they, they did say that it wasn't their strongest. And when you think something like uh, Tefaf and Brafa, which are the two big fairs that show old master paintings, will both have been cancelled, which is not good. And I think that Trefaf has actually reduced its length. So I think all of this translates as a fact that this is not uh, a, a terribly thriving market. But on the other hand, of course, when you get an exceptional work of art, and Salvador Mundi is obviously the standout example, then you will get very strong bidding. But it is a question of the best and the rest. Right. And you mentioned those fairs there. And if fairs aren't happening and therefore there are fewer opportunities for a certain kind of collector to Mm. go somewhere and buy an old master painting, are they not therefore more likely to go to the auction room instead or does it not work like that? Well, you know that the art market really functions on supply rather than demand. And everybody in the art world will say that if they can get the very, very good material, they'll sell it. So I don't think that only applies to the old master market. But I would like to make one other comment about the old master market, is that we are seeing an increasing interest in investment in art. It's really very strongly driving the market at the moment. 
And old masters really are very difficult to analyse in the same way that you can analyse, for example, an Andy Warhol flowers and look at the performance of other works because each is unique. They have attribution problems, they have uh, condition problems. And so I think that the investment in them, except for very, very top works, is more difficult for people who have got investment in mind because they just can't stick it on a spreadsheet in the same way that they could with uh, more recent works of art. What about attributions and things like that? Because obviously, as you say, this particular painting, The Man of Sorrow, is sold in the 60s for £10,000, and that was because it was at that point classified as a workshop picture. Now it's been fairly widely attributed to Botticelli. There are still some people with doubts, but mostly people seem to agree that it is a Botticelli. Does that affect the confidence of somebody buying it? If there are experts that may change that sort of attribution or question it, does that cause any sort of collector nervousness? Uh, Absolutely. But the problem is that you're dealing with works of art that are over 500 years old or thereabouts, and it's terribly difficult. You will get experts with different opinions that are very genuinely held and in the case of this Botticelli it was indeed in the catalogue raisonné which is by Ronald Lightbarn it is classified as workshop and a school picture and he of course has died so he's not around and then you have Lawrence Cantor who definitely believes in it uh, Keith Christensen who definitely believes in it but then you have Scott Nethersole who is not quite so convinced And this is another problem with old master paintings, is that you will have conflicting opinions, and there certainly are some doubts in some quarters about this. There was a very good article, actually, by Scott Rabin in the art newspaper, pointing out that, of course, this idea of a work of art that is from the old master field being completely autographed is probably not so. You almost invariably had the studio for example, doing the background, the draperies, for example. Today we want things to be completely autograph, and that actually wasn't the case when they were produced, probably. Indeed. Now, there's been a market story that's emerged in the last couple of days that we can't ignore, really. This is the fact that the Grand Palais have announced that the fair that will take place this autumn in Paris will be run by MCH, who are the people that own Art Basel. This is a seismic shift in the French art world, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's definitely an earthquake and the, the French are absolutely horrified. It's quite extraordinary because FIAC, the Foire Internationale d'Art Contemporain, has been in the Grand Palais or has existed because they've, from time to time, because of structural problems of the Grand Palais, they've been elsewhere. And at the moment, the Grand Palais is closed until 2024. And of course, the thing is that RX, which is the Dutch company that runs both FIAC and Paris Photo, which is the photo fair, um, has actually been in dispute with the Grand Palais, which I think hasn't helped their cause. Uh, When uh, FIAC had to be moved out of the Grand Palais because of structural issues, the Grand Palais presented RX with a bill of, I believe, a million euros, which subsequently was brought down to 650,000, and which I believe has not yet been paid. So they were already in in a fight about it. And it seems that Chris Durkin, formerly of Tate, had negotiated or had negotiated with MCH, which owns Art Basel. And of course, having gone through quite a difficult financial period, um, MCH is now the Art Basel arm, has been buoyed by money from a Murdoch son. 
and uh, as a result seems to have much more money. And they seem to have taken advantage of the possibility of moving into France. Paris Photo has remained in the hands of RX. RX is fuming. The French trade is fuming. But on the other hand, uh, Art Basel has promised that they will give spaces to as many French galleries as in the past. It will not just be another Art Basel. They are saying it's not going to be Art Basel Paris. It'll be something else. So we shall see. But certainly the French are absolutely furious about this. Uh, the French trade is really up in arms. When we spoke about the act last year, one of the things that I think it was Melanie Gerlis I spoke to said, you know, one of the things is that FIAC has a sort of different feel to the other fairs and it's not as electric as some of the freeze fairs for instance but there's a there's a very likable quality to it everybody i know that goes to fiac sort of enjoys it likes the pace and everything else you have it being run by somebody who's who's got a lot of experience running a very particular kind of fair doesn't it make fairs all rather homogenized and and not have those different feels that actually collectors dealers quite like I totally agree. I think that the big problem is going to be homogenization. We saw Art Basel when they took over what was Art Hong Kong, which had, you know, it was quirky and fun and a start-up, and then it just became baselisé, as the French say. It became Basel, and I think this is the danger. FIAC was a lovely fair. Partly it was lovely because it was in this brilliant building, the Grand Palais, with this soaring glass dome and wonderful lighting. So that was great. And it did. It had a charm. It had a French charm, and you went to Paris. What will happen, we don't know. But I think there is a danger that the Swiss efficiency will come in, but also with a sort of, as you say, homogenization of art fairs. OK, well, Georgina, thank you for joining us to talk about both the Botticelli and Paris. Thank you for having me. As promised, the results of that Botticelli auction, the Man of Sorrows sold eventually for a hammer price of $39.3 million, with very slow and rather painful increments of $100,000 at a time towards the end, and that price with fees is $45.4 million. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Last week, the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco opened Seeing Gender, the first exhibition to view the museum's vast collection of Asian objects through the prism of gender. Four emerging curators have brought works from diverse periods and cultures together in the exhibition, and our deputy digital editor Amy Dawson spoke to one of them, Megan Merritt, about a pairing of works, a contemporary piece on paper by the Chinese artist Wilson Shea and a 20th century car sculpture by the Indonesian artist Ida Bagas Putu Taman. So, Megan, can you tell us about how the show came about and how it was organized? Sure, yeah. So, Seeing Gender is an exhibition I co-curated with three other colleagues from across the curatorial teams at the museum. And it sort of came about because we were sort of asked to put on this exhibition and we wanted to choose a subject that had teeth and that was kind of something that our visitors could probe and sort of contemplate as they went about their day after they left the museum. So in the exhibition, we're exploring the complex and dynamic representations of gender across culture, time, and place. So I say it's unconventional just because, you know, we selected 17 artworks and we arranged them in these unconventional groupings or unorthodox groupings that create compelling relationships that inspire dialogue amongst and between the objects. 
So the oldest work in the show is from 840, and the most recent work is from 2014. So the timeline is nonlinear and somewhat experimental since we're exploring the works cross-culturally. And like you say, it has teeth. And by that, you know, gender is obviously an enormous topic of debate and discussion in the world right now. And, you know, it obviously has huge resonances with your particular audience in the Bay Area. Have you kind of been discussing this with the community and with younger people? How has it been developed within the area? So when we were brainstorming ideas for the exhibition, we tossed around possible themes, but none of them seemed really urgent enough. So we wanted to present an exhibition that visitors could kind of see themselves in or that would resonate with them. The next day after they saw the exhibition, maybe over there making their coffee, they kind of think back to the exhibition and what it meant to them. So gender rose to the top of our list for a few reasons. So as you mentioned, gender and sexuality are so central to our conversations today, especially in the Bay Area. So being situated in San Francisco, we especially felt the urge to bring gender to the forefront. We wanted to create a space where the spectrum of gender representations could be explored via artworks from our collection. And even though the exhibition sort of features works, you know, as old as 840, as I mentioned, I think of it really as a contemporary show. So we really felt it was crucial as curators to engage our community. And, you know, that means outside the museum and also internally to the museum, And we wanted to include other voices. So, you know, as curators, we could provide the art historical context, but we wanted the space to feel more intimate and welcoming. So we actually invited three outside advisors to contribute their own personal narratives to um, the exhibition itself. So we worked with T.T. Takamoto, who works at the California College of the Arts, Um, Anna Ang, who's a professor at San Francisco State University, and then Franny Choi, who's a poet on the East Coast. And they each wrote their own first-person narratives about how gender sort of plays out in their personal lives and also tangentially kind of how it relates to any of the works that spoke to them um, in the exhibition. And then internally at the museum, we also have this really fantastic program called ArtSpeak, and it's a program for high school interns. And, you know, they're younger, they're grades 10 through 12, so we really wanted to engage that kind of younger audience to explain to us or show us, you know, how gender plays out in their everyday lives. So they created a video that's just phenomenal. They're just so eloquent when they speak about gender and uh, much more so than I'm sure I was when I was their age. So it was really fantastic to have all these kind of alternative voices contribute to the exhibition. And it's fantastic to have, obviously, those expertise and also those range of thoughts and people involved, because it obviously is an important topic that we're all debating. It's also like very controversial and people have very strong opinions about it. Do you have any concerns about it sparking a backlash or anyone being perturbed by it? We're exploring our collection in a new light. This is actually the first show the museum has done solely on the topic of gender. So we're examining works from our collection that have been interpreted in different ways in past shows. So some of these works have been on view for years in different galleries and, you know, never probably discussed in this kind of context. But I don't think our show will perturb visitors. I think it will 
hopefully give them possibilities to consider. We do talk about, you know, gender as being performative, which is something that Judith Butler discusses in a lot of her theory and, and work. So I don't think it will hopefully perturb our visitors. I think it will add to their um, conversations that they're having with their friends, their family, their neighbors, their communities, and hopefully it'll be a positive um, reflection of of the museum and um, just showing our collection in a totally different light than people would have expected. I think it's great and super brave. And um, we're going to talk specifically about a couple of works in the show. It's work of the week, but this week it's two works of the week, because as you say, the exhibition is kind of organized in couplings or these little groupings to draw out this theme of gender and relationships. So can you tell me about the two objects you've chosen and how they speak to one another? Yeah, absolutely. So the first work is called Musical Bodies Banjo. It's a work from 1999. And the other work is called Satyavadi and Salya, which is a work from around 1936-1940. And I really chose these two works because the figures in both works are, they have a striking resemblance, the way they're positioned, their bodies, um, and the way they're kind of, they're both uh, couplings. So they're both two pairs that are kind of entangled with each other. And so the first work that really stood out to me was Musical Bodies Banjo. And this is a work that it's a completely, it's a, it's a gorgeous work. It literally shimmers in the gallery because it's on this really beautiful gold paper And it's actually one work in a series of four that shows a figure that is an instrument and a figure that is sort of playing the body as an instrument. So it's this very provocative scene. And I talked to the artist who is Wilson Shea. He's based in Hong Kong about this work. And he told me that he gravitates toward a very specific style of traditional Chinese painting called gongbi, which is a fine line technique. And he prefers to sort of use this ancient technique in a more contemporary way by depicting um, contemporary subjects often in these peculiar kind of situations. So during the period when he was making this piece, he would often visit his public library to borrow books and CDs. And he really took notice of the library's extensive selection of classical music CDs, which was a departure from what he normally listened to. And he decided to check a few of them out from the library And notice that on the cover of these CDs, there were often these photos or drawings of music ensembles that were specific to the period of the music. So normally like Renaissance or Baroque type music. And he wondered whether he could paint something similar to that in his kind of traditional Chinese style, this gongbi technique. But he wanted the figures to be contemporary and fluid. So he thought, well, why not undress them? and kind of strip them of any association related to a particular era or geographical region. And so that's what he did, and that's what this work is. So in the work, there are two nude figures, and the figures are, they're sexy, and they're androgynous. They're, as I said, they're, they're nude, they have these plump, luscious red lips, cropped hair, dainty feet and nearly identical faces that seem almost interchangeable. And when I talked to Shay about this work, he suggested that these could be straight or queer or gender non-conforming figures or even sort of twins or a surreal version of a single self. Um, but I think what's most provocative about this work is that one of the figures is playing the other as an instrument. 
So the belly of one of the figures is actually a banjo. And this figure is also holding the strings to the banjo, you know, tautly while the other figure plays it behind, standing behind this other figure. So they're in a very intimate and almost erotic scene together. And when I asked Shay about the figures and how he kind of came up with this, he told me that his influences really sprang out of his sort of musical interests as a teenager. So he mentioned that he was really into David Bowie, Annie Lennox, and how these sort of gender-bending artists were major influences and helped shape his understanding of the expansiveness of gender possibilities. So I think his characters here really exemplify how the conventional model of gender binaries can be destabilized and challenged. And I looked at this work alongside a Balinese sculpture that I mentioned earlier, and it's a complete departure. It's uh, depicting a king and queen, a royal couple whose story derives from an ancient poem, and they exemplify a much more conventional model of heteronormativity. So in the sculpture, they're intertwined. Um, the male figure, Salya, wraps around his wife and sort of clutches her breast and wraps his leg around her waist. And this is, you know, a suggestion of, of love in Balinese um, very typical narratives. And both of the figures have these delicate raised eyebrows, upward angled eyes, and kind of features that mirror traditional features that are characteristic to Indonesian puppet shadow plays. So Salya is the male figure, and he's wearing these typical long earrings, while the female Satyawati is wearing these earplugs that are common for females. And their sort of arms are in these kind of almost right angles, and they're wearing these beautiful decorative costumes that are really wonderfully carved into the, into the wood. And they're kind of evocative of Balinese dancers. So when you look at these two artworks kind of side by side, it's evident that the postures are really the only thing that kind of make them similar. Other than that, they're, they're completely sort of departures from the two. So one of them is exemplifying a very conventional model of heterosexuality, while the figures in Musical Bodies Banjo are androgynous, and they could be read as being straight or queer or even as twins. I think it's a really beautiful pairing. And obviously, as you say, the stances are what ties them. They're very similar, kind of like wrapped around one another. But in terms of the mm. style, they couldn't be more different. As you say, this sculpture is very angular. It's got very kind of sharp features. And Musical Bodies is a very soft and voluptuous rendering but what's fascinating about it is both are showing a representation of love do the works in the show show love as well as gender as well as sexuality and sensuality do these all come together in some senses yes so we kind of grouped the different objects into seven different categories because we didn't really want to limit the scope of of gender. I mean, it's such a huge topic that you could really go in so many different directions. And so I think with our seven different groupings or categories, I should say, you know, we were able to kind of look at different facets of gender. So in this instance, this is under the category of relationships. It could also be under love or sensuality or eroticism, I think. Um, but yeah, I was able to really kind of delve into the intimacy of these couplings in this, in this group. 
other sections of the exhibition don't look at love as much. There's, you know, one section's on symbolism, talking about sort of two works that look at the female anatomy, um, sort of womanhood, symbols of fertility. So it's a wide range of the different sides of gender, I would say. And in terms of the labelling, of course, as you say, there's so many spectrums to this, there's so many directions you could take. And, you know, people have such personal feelings towards the subject. In the labels and in the texts, how much of it is it a narrative about the objects? How much of it do you kind of explain your thoughts about putting these things together? Or is it kind of left to the imagination and interpretation of the viewers? Yeah, I'd say the labels are more art historical, um, kind of typical of what you would see, a little more academic. And then, you know, that's why we really wanted to make this a holistic experience for visitors by including those outside voices. So I think with our three advisors, they bring in such a sort of um, personal, intimate narrative of their, you know, how they, how they react and how they live with gender in their day-to-day lives and what it means to them. And they really gravitated towards certain artworks, which was fascinating to see which artworks really spoke to them and which artworks they really wanted to, you know, incorporate into these narratives that they wrote. And then with our ArtSpeak interns, the sort of Gen Z perspective was also fascinating because they didn't really ruminate on any of the artworks specifically but they talked about how gender changed in certain contexts. So, you know, whether they were with their family or whether they were at school with their peers, how they expressed their gender, how they kind of were able to code switch in a way. So it was kind of fascinating to hear these just different voices enter, enter the room. And I think that makes it a much more holistic experience. I think it's an incredibly brave and topical show and wish you best of luck with the exhibition. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much. Seeing Gender is at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco until the 5th of September. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Town Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Axel, Georgina, Amy and Megan. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.